Hi there, you're listening to The Imposters, the podcast series for PhD students by PhD students. I am your host, Francesca Vaghi, and it's my pleasure to introduce two new guests to the show today. Joining us to talk about public engagement are Alexandra Bulat from the UCL School of Slavonic and East European Studies and Carl Trutson from the Department of Human Geography at the LSE. Thanks for tuning in to SOAS Radio and welcome once again to The Imposters. So, hello, Carl. Hello. And hello, Alex. Hi. It's lovely to have two non-SOAS guests uh, on the episode today, first time. So I'm very excited. Today we're going to talk about something that, as PhD students, we are increasingly uh, required to do, I believe, which is how to communicate our research to the wider public. So without much further ado, I would like to invite uh, perhaps first Alex to introduce herself and her really fascinating research. Okay, so I'm in my third year of PhD studies at the moment, and my topic broadly is attitudes towards EU migrants in the UK in the context of Brexit. So I'm doing qualitative research with Polish, Romanian and British participants uh, in two local authority areas. in Newham in London and in Tendring in Essex uh, to understand better the views towards EU migration in this uh, ever-changing Brexit context in the UK. Yeah, it's really fascinating research and I'm sure we'll be hearing a lot more details about it in the course of the program. Carl? Yes, so uh, I'm in the, what is it now, beginning of my fourth year of my PhD, so I just returned from fieldwork. My fieldwork was situated in the city of Norrköping in Sweden, which is Sweden's 10th largest city. It's a, an old industrial um, city, but it's also a, an immigrant city, and it's also a, a, a strong social democratic stronghold for, for many decades. Um, and I guess my, my research is yeah, qualitative, mainly ethnographic, but also some archival and some survey work and whatnot. And I spent a year there just trying to figure out how social democratic party activists on the local level understand Sweden's changing migration regime and also how they try to respond to the rise of this right-wing nationalist Mm. party called the Sweden Democrats. Mm. Uh, And the election was just this September 9th, so it was in the lead-up to the election that was there. I mean, I think the uh, question that I'm about to ask is a bit self-evident, but why did you become interested in this topic and why are you passionate about it? Well, for me, it was both the timing and it was personal as well. So before 2014, I wanted to specialize in medical sociology, which is very different to migration studies. So I wrote most of of my essays on uh, mental health. Uh, within Mm. the context of sociology. Uh, But then something happened in 2014 uh, when the work restrictions were lifted for Romanians and Bulgarians in the UK. So suddenly, as a Romanian in the UK, I read a lot of press and I watched some documentaries about attitudes towards Romanians. So I thought to do a research, small research project on British views uh, towards Romanian people. Uh, And I just did this project in Brighton and the surrounding area. And one thing leads to the next. So after that small research project, as a research associate, whilst I was still in my undergrad, then I proposed my master's dissertation and then it led to the PhD. So the project got bigger and bigger over time. Wow. Yeah. 
Carl? Oh, well, I grew up in the U.S., but I have Swedish Swedish heritage, and I would spend my summers there with my grandparents. So I suppose I've always looked to Sweden as this sort of fascinating, very different welfare, universalistic welfare state uh, in contrast to the U.S., and I originally started out because I was pissed off about this idea about neoliberalism and how that was used to explain sort of social democracy's demise. And so I started out really trying to think through how I would, well, how I would try to interrogate that concept um, ethnographically, I suppose. And yeah. then it, and then the migration crisis happened in 2015, and yeah, all the rest of it. And yeah. So it, it changed very much from what I initially thought. It was That's actually be. something that is quite similar to both your research. You, you also are quite ethnographic, aren't you? And and yes, I did uh, quite a lot of interviews. I may I have probably at the end of the fieldwork, I will have about eighty wow. mm. recorded interviews. But I also have observations. I attended different events in the area, both political and non-political, and also got involved with different organizations on the ground to just observe what people say off the record about migration, as well as in the recorded. Mm. Interviews, so I'll, I'll have a bit of my research will be more structured, more comparative. I will actually analyze the transcripts comparatively in the different areas, and a lot of the other fieldwork is more contextual as well. So contextualizing those interviews mm. into the broader picture, and I also did some uh, archival research. Uh, British Library, Cambridge, and Oxford, all three have uh, collections of EU com- referendum campaign material. So hundreds of leaflets, newsletters distributed in 2016. So I also looked at how immigration was presented in the campaign and how my participants relate uh, to those ideas. And actually in the interview, I show a range of leaflets mm. from all <laughs> okay. sides of uh, the political spectrum and see how people react to the different political ideas on migration. Mm. That's really, really cool. Yeah, um, absolutely. One thing that I like to uh, also ask on the show is, what kind of challenges have you faced so far? <laughs> challenges. Maybe it's it's how to plan effectively in a way mm. because I've been working throughout my studies really. So it's from my undergrad, my masters, and I never had enough money really. So I think it's quite hard to balance work and studies. Even though I have funding, there are moments when I had to, I don't know, send uh, keep some money for uh, some of my family members, and you know, mm. it is not always easy to manage paid work and find paid work that's relevant to yeah. your studies. Uh, because I did some unrelated jobs in the past and I felt it kind of disconnects you from your research. So if you work, let's say, in a cafe, for example, that's great in terms of you have some hours, you have some extra money. Uh, but if you work in something related, as I worked more recently, then it actually makes you draw parallels between the research that you're involved in as a paid researcher mm. to your own pr- project. Mm. So I think that's, but that's been happening more recently. Yeah, Carl. Challenges. I, I mean, mean I, I just, I just like to recall our breakfast moans that we used to have about how we had imposter syndrome, essentially. And absolutely, we would, we would yeah. rotate weeks. That's right. Yeah. No, uh, clearly that's that is definitely an issue, as this, <laughs> this podcast is called. Um, so yeah, it, it was that, and it's just also sort of trying to find a feeling, feeling adequate, but also just feeling as you have some sort of red thread that makes somewhat sense, and you. I mean, now I basically have just come back from field work and I'm still trying to land and acclimatize mm. to being back in a different context and I'm going to start teaching again and all the rest of it. And now I have all this material 
you know, I think I have like 120 interviews <laughs> and like all these surveys and archival mm-hmm. stuff, descriptive statistics and everything. And I have to do something with it and distill it and think about it and boil it down and mm-hmm. make some sort of compelling, hopefully, mm-hmm. story out of it. And I suppose that's a challenge, but I mean, I haven't had the same challenges, um, but... Yeah. D- data is a challenge for me as well. It's just because I've been doing field work and being involved in different observations, different organizations. And then mm. I think, yes, this huge amount of data that suddenly is on your table or in your files. Yeah. And I, I didn't even start transcribing everything yet. And some interviews are even six hours long in my case. Oh, well. Okay. So I'm not even knowing. I don't even know exactly if I should transcribe everything because I will spend months <clears throat> only transcribing. Of course. So I'm still deciding on the strategy to analyze the data and whether I could transcribe more selectively. But then again, that produces some other limitations as well. So I'm not really sure. Finishing the PhD on time or doing it properly and transcribing everything. Yeah, there are differences there. I guess some people are more purists that you have to transcribe everything, whereas I think my supervisors seem to be more, You, I mean, you should listen through everything and code it and bring out the essence, but you don't have to just transcribe it just to have transcribed mm-hmm. it. And, but I know that, yeah, supervisors are, are different in that. Well, there's so. also the thing that data that you don't use now can be used for journal articles or mm-hmm. if yeah. we were discussing on the way here, postdocs. So mm-hmm. yeah. it's never useless. Yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah, that's true. On that note, I would like to bring us to our first musical interlude. As listeners of this podcast know, I like to ask the guests to suggest some music for us to play during the the hour that we spend here. And the first one is a choice by Carl. It's a PDA mm. by Paramore. No, no, no. Interpol. Interpol. Whoops. <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell us a bit about that song, please? Oh, I, mean, I don't think the, the title sort of is a standalone for what PDA mm. is, but it's it's from an album called uh, Turn On The Bright Lights, which is from 2002. I'd say it's one of the best albums of the first decade of the new millennium. I think it's, it's raw, edgy, good, solid rock and roll from New York City. So we'll be right back after this small break. Great. 
So, as I said at the beginning of the show, as PhD students and academics, we are increasingly required even to show the impact, quote unquote, of our work. And I think in a way, even though it's become a bureaucratic kind of tick box exercise, it is quite important to disseminate our, our work, especially in, you know, the case of both of you, when it's so topical and relevant and complex and we're in much need of nuance in both your cases, I would think. So mm. in your point of view, why? I mean, I've just given some of my reasons, but why, in your point of view, do you think it's good to do public engagement? Mm. I think my topic, because it's migration, and of course, uh, people have been debating migration for many years, especially in the context of Brexit. Now it's becoming increasingly more important. And I observed the political debate, and I always thought it's either like extreme one way or the other, mm. It's either people saying like, yeah, we should allow everyone in regardless or people saying we should stop immigration. So there's not really first, there's not an, really an evidence based discussion on migration in the UK, mm. broadly speaking, in the media. And um, secondly, it's quite divisive the way migration is di discussed. So I thought for me, it's very important I disseminate my research with that is based on evidence that I personally collect in two areas and it's comparative as well. So I open more evidence-based discussion and maybe influence policy in some way, hopefully after I finish and I mm. actually have my, my results. But it's mainly yeah, to have a more evidence-based discussion that encourages more voices as well in the debate, not only the same politicians arguing over migration over and over again. Uh, and also because a lot of the policy terms don't translate in the same way to the public as politicians understand them. So, for example, you might have heard a lot in the UK, we're fine with high skill migration, uh, but we shouldn't have low skill migration. And actually, when you go in the field and you ask, even I ask UKIP voters, you know, conservative leave voters. So what do you actually mean by this? You know, people define low-skilled quite differently. I had even UKIP voters who said, of course, a construction worker is not low-skilled mm. uh, because I can't do the job. And I actually value that, you know, someone else could build my house when I got my house. So I think, you know, there's more nuance, as you said, in the debate. And I think that's why we need academic work to come into public discussion to bring that nuance and those examples from fieldwork as well. Thank you. Absolutely. I mean, I think that that's your topic is, is much in some ways, it's 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 much more relevant for there to be new. I mean, there are so many studies about social democracy in Sweden and these changing. I mean, I hopefully capture a moment in it that is important. But uh, but even so, I mean, I, and we'll probably discuss this a bit later on. But I sort of stumbled into commenting a bit about the election just recently, yes. as it was just recently. Um, and there, I I could see the need for nuance very clearly because the sort of and it's been called out after the fact that the the entire sort of world wanted Sweden to crash and burn, it seemed like. And there's been this growing narrative when Donald Trump had seen some segment on Fox News a few years ago about Sweden having no-go zones and all the rest of it. And, and then ever since then, in this sort of, you know, Brexit context and Trump's own sort of rise and this whole sort of populist moment that people love to, love to tout on about, um, I think that the world was sort of holding its breath with some sort of, uh, in some ways, it seemed this sort of hope that the, the Sweden Democrats, as they're called, that they would indeed become the second largest party and that Sweden was this sort of quagmire, this Islamist and populist and Nazi sort of mess and everything was going down the drain and 
and I, I hopefully was able to, in the media engagements, provide a bit more nuance there and say that, you know, we have to, we have to think about this more seriously. And in the end, actually, the Sweden Democrats didn't get anywhere near the amount of votes that people were suggesting they were. And the center parties held much better than were expected. And so hopefully try to cut through the, the hyperbole a bit. So Absolutely. in that sense, I think that it was, it's needed to have academic studies. And uh, I know the answer to this, but listeners won't, I think. Uh, what kind of outlets have you both used to disseminate your, your research? Well, I've done ki all kinds of media, really. So a lot of social media, I do disseminate a lot on Twitter. And often I write a thread on migration that then becomes a news article or wow. a blog post. So actually, it's good that if you have a very popular thread, then journalists may approach you and then they That's might great, invite yeah. you to write an article. So recently, I wrote about uh, just a thread, just was I was commuting on the train, and I just thought I would just write about this high, low skilled yeah. migration binary. So what does it actually mean in practice? Mm. And uh, I got someone from the metro contacting me. Uh, and that turned into a longer piece, an article in the metro mm. uh, about uh, having a debate on low and high skill migration. What does it actually mean for people rather than being a soundbite in politics yeah. um, and uh, then I also published a, a lot of blog posts um, notably the LSE Brexit vote blog which is really good for all things Brexit um, and uh, also other blogs but uh, related to Brexit it's the LSE uh, Brexit and also some TV appearances but that's I think mostly to do with my activist work rather than hmm. uh, the academic, although sometimes I'm presented as, you know, a PhD student. Hmm. I mean, I, I have to admit, I came quite late into the game and disseminating my, I mean, I hadn't really done I'd, a few blog posts and whatnot beforehand, but then since the election, I was somehow found to be an expert of sorts. And yeah, it started with things of an Australian newspaper then it was mm. a few radio appearances one in South Korea and in Australia and yeah, some news some channel here in the UK and the Lancet recently as mm -hmm. well, so. and the Daily Express yes oh. yes which is the most exciting of them all <laughs> apropos Brexit yeah. um, so which do you think I stumbled in <laughs> stumbled mm. but didn't fall hopefully We'll see. <laughs> no, so far. So. Um, which do you think are most effective? Do you think people... Well, of course, Metro is very mm. widely read, and mm. I'm sure that was a very effective article, but which medium do you think might be most effective to disseminate work? I think it depends very much on your mm. topic. For me, social media is very effective in this context because everyone reads news on migration and threads mm. on migration on social media, and it's a good point to start and after that you might have an article or a blog after that uh, or you might just make contacts in the media mm. and be invited at a later stage if they have a debate on migration so one contact I made a few months ago after I wrote something on Twitter recently invited me um, at on a TV channel it was on Channel 4 News two days ago so you never know how the contact you make on social media oh, could absolutely. invite you to other maybe radio stations or even television afterwards So mm -hmm. I would say social media is a good first point to disseminate your research. Yeah, I mean, I, I have to go back to the fact that I think I was hopefully able to to temper the perception about Sweden a bit. I think that's that if if I have done that, then I have succeeded because there's mm. people that are far more have far more expertise about Swedish politics than I do. But somehow I was dragged in and made this expert, and that's all well and good. But if I was, as I said, able to in any way nuance this topic, um, yeah. I think that I will be 
more than pleased. I mean, mm. I don't know which of mo- as you know what medium is the mm. most effective. I think it depends, but but hopefully, for example, the Daily Express. I mean, if we have our you know <laughs> stereotypes of who reads that and all the rest of it, and uh, but you know, I think that the journalist, to her credit, did balance it quite well, and yeah, she took my. Yeah, she quoted me enough to to hopefully get that nuance in there that it wasn't just this sort of this narrative that I think a lot of some other journalists really do have one message. And there was this Dutch journalist that I helped a bit right before the election and, and showing her my field site and whatnot. And I, I could tell a bit that she there was a narrative in her mind and, and that was the one that she wanted to to pursue. And <laughs> I mean, yeah, you know, it was. It was good that I hopefully was able to steer that mm. a bit. I don't read Dutch, so I don't know mm. what she ended up writing. But. Well, on that note, a second musical interlude then, and this time one of the songs that Alex um, suggested and by an artist that I hadn't heard, but I really like his music, uh, Bugsy Malone. The song is called Ordinary People. Why did you pick this song? You said you're quite into grime and rap. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, I think it's uh, also has uh, the topic of migration appears quite a lot, uh, and even deportation in some of uh, his songs. So I think it's quite interesting to find music that's related to your field of study as well. Yeah, yeah, great. Well, we'll be right back after ordinary people. If you wanna know something about me, the blood in my veins is full of northern grey. I got that northern soul, man. I got bags of it. We're far from ordinary people. And if you wanna know something about us, the hearts in our chest are full of northern love. And even when we're broke, we'll always have enough. We're far from ordinary people. Yeah. Yeah. Alright, how can I say this? From a place where no one expects us to make it. There was the stone roses on Oasis, but when they were big, we were still babies. I'm talking to the new generation, and we wasn't born in the 80s. They say that we don't see many places, because nobody's left there for ages. Serious love for the people that raised us, even though it got crazy. Poverty stricken, but that never faced us. Not one of us lazy. And I'll be the first to say money don't change us. Well, it didn't change me. I'll never forget where I came from, that's because it's the struggle that saved me. On the streets we got brought up, and we'd play on the grass cause we're trying to be pro footballers they say there's no kings out here nobody's got money every one of us paupers i beg to differ because i see the bigger picture every one of us kings we could live on the street and make it a castle fuck what they call us you can keep throwing our orders in fact bring cameras and record us we've been fighting for survival and you're gonna learn what war does why did he call it an army that's because he's filled with souls a war going on outside in his life If you wanna know something about me, the blood in my veins is full of northern grit. I got that northern soul, man, I got bags of it. We're far from ordinary people. If you wanna know something about us, the hearts in our chest are full of northern love. Even when we're broke, we'll always have enough. We're far from ordinary people. I think we've kind of touched upon this already a bit, but I would quite like to then ask you, what do you find is easiest to communicate to lay audiences about your research? Um, I think it's easiest uh, easiest to communicate narratives from the fieldwork. So, you know, starting from a concept like what does high-skill migration actually mean? 
and just saying, okay, here are some examples of, okay, let's say this Polish lady I interviewed, she came to the UK with no English. She worked first as a cleaner, then a waitress, then a, a supervisor for Costa Coffee. But now after 10 years in the UK, she's actually a manager in a bank. And meanwhile, she did mm. like a couple of degrees. And this kind of makes people think, so you might agree or disagree with different types of migration, but this at least makes people reflect that you can have social mobility even if you come with arguably very little skills, mm, then you yeah. could actually improve yourself and you know make a better life for yourself. And also you can be critical of the term low skilled in itself. Like what does it actually mean? Does it only mean low paid or is it such a thing as actually low mm. or no skills? So I find fieldwork examples and those life stories from people, just summarize life stories, just make people reflect. And that reflection is often enough for a more comprehensive debate on migration that's not so polarized polarized mm. as it is at the moment it's interesting sorry i'm going to let carl speak uh, as well on this question but i i find that interesting because so often we at least anthropologists especially we are told that qualitative data is inferior to quantitative data and in the case of your research i would have from an ignorant position assumed that numbers spoke louder than this kind of very micro um, mm. case study. So it's it's good to hear, but maybe you can say more about that as well. What do you, do you feel like numbers matter as well? I think it depends whom you're speaking to. Like if you go and speak to politicians, they would want some numbers as well, or at least how it relates to more um, larger research projects that use more data. But if you just speak to just a random person on the street and explain your research project to them, I really feel the narrative and the story is really really important. And to just give you an example, for example, in the e-referendum campaign, there was this claim that was widely known. I would I would have assumed that EU migrants contribute two billion more to the economy than they cost. Mm. Right? And when I discuss this in my interviews, because that's one one of the leaflets as well, people say, okay, even if I knew this, I don't see how immigration makes a positive change at the local level in my street, in my neighborhood, for mm. me personally. So although some Leave voters knew this, that, you know, overall in the UK, migration brings a net contribution, at least, you know, both EU and non-EU migration, but it was focused on EU migration. They said, I don't see how this makes a positive change in my local area in, let's say, Newham or Essex in Clacton, where I did most of my interviews. Yeah. So I think that's why it's important to, the micro level is important because people relate, most people I would say relate more to their street, their neighbors first than the wider economic picture. Yeah, wonderful. That's no, absolutely. I think just to jump in, but it's like the optics there are obviously you can't really capture that quantitatively. It's how people feel very much that it doesn't matter. You know, you can tell them that the economy does better, but it's more how they, the sort of ocularity. Yeah. So over I mean, during the course of the past year, I've I've spoken with lots of, of you know, of Swedish people that, that aren't academics, that are just people I've met in various contexts. And so the, the Sweden Democrats, I, I guess I have to preface this with this, uh, otherwise it won't make much sense, but the Sweden Democrats only gained entrance to parliament in, in 2010, so just two, well, two elections ago in, in Sweden, and they their roots are less than savory i'd say they're you know they have basically it was a bunch of different amalgamations of political groups some nazi specifically neo-nazi groupings that came together and built this party called the sweden democrats in the late 80s and then they've slowly but surely tried to sanitize their their imagery as a party and become more professionalized and kick out the most extreme elements but there is still a very much 
their their past haunts them i'd say to to a large extent in sweden and i think that's part of the reason why they haven't gained entrance to parliament earlier if you compare for example denmark or norway have similar sort of anti-immigrant parties but they've been in power or in parliament for decades longer and so in sweden there is this this very strong visceral hatred especially of people on the left more than perhaps people on the center right of the sweden democrats and but it, you have to, I think, you have to couch this when you're talking about the Sweden Democrats. They have their party leadership. But then you also have, you know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people who voted for the Sweden Democrats. And I think that if, I, I think that's the easy, not the easiest, but that's been the sort of, well, in, in some ways it has been easy because I've also like, kind of like Alex, I've tried to just, you know, make personal narratives that I've spoken to many people who say that they have voted or are planning to vote for the Sweden Democrats who I wouldn't say are racist people. Um, the, you know, there's a lot of resentment towards the traditional parties and inequality has grown in Sweden. That's obviously contributed and immigration has, you know, non-European immigration has grown in Sweden as well in the last 10 years. But I think speaking with, with people just... For example, my mum's friends and whatnot who have very strong aversions to the Sweden Democrats and just think they're racists and Nazis and, and trying to make this more, you know, these are, but their voters are not necessarily racist, you know, and they're not evil people just because they vote for the Sweden Democrats. And I think, again, this is probably more on the on the left and my mom doesn't have left wing friends. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> but speaking, well, speaking with younger, younger people um, that I know that I know clearly are either active or just passive mm. supporters of various left-wing parties in Sweden, um, trying to have a dialogue there and, and try to nuance it a bit more than it's just that every Sweden Democrat is a, you know, a, a racist idiot, a bigot. And I think that you don't get anywhere if you can't get past mm. that and, and see that these people have grievances. I'm not saying that Sweden Democrats have the solutions to them, but to move past that sort of that's kind of something that came up in a recent blog post that you wrote. Um, I can't remember the name of the town. Uh, in Jaywick, yeah. yeah. I did some interviews, uh, part of the interviews in, in Tendring. I did. I went to Jaywick for a couple of days and I spoke to people there and it's one of the most deprived areas in the UK. Mm. Actually, it was the most deprived area in the UK for several years and most people voted uh, leave and there are also a lot of non-voters who are just disengaged with politics in the area and very little migration so maybe one mm. maybe one family who's from another EU country and maybe mm. a couple who are non-EU but from like 5,000 people maybe there I don't know very very few anyway who are of migrant background um, and yeah the question was about their attitude towards migration and how it relates to to Brexit and yeah what I said in the blog post is that I find it quite unhelpful to you know categorize some people categorize livers as you know they're all racist or yeah. they're all doing that or they are all bad people yeah. uh, because that was not necessarily my impression being there on the field in the field and actually speaking to to people uh, and um also, I think it's polarizing the debate because then you have uh, some leave voters saying about, you know, Ramoners and snowflakes. But on the other hand, you have the remain voting people who say about leave voters similar things. So everyone's generalizing about each other and you don't really create a meaningful dialogue that encourages the discussion amongst different perspectives. And that's not good for you know, democracy or for policy of of any kind. Uh, so that's what I said, because I said, uh, I think I remember in one paragraph, I said, as a migration researcher for several years, I often said, you don't, if you want to write about migration, you have to actually go and speak to the migrants that you're writing about. And why shouldn't I do the same with leave voters? 
Absolutely. Why should I just generalize yeah. and speak about them no. without actually being in touch with them and listening to them? So I think that was yeah my main point. Mm. Yeah, that's really wonderful. Before we talk about some of the difficulties, I would like to uh, introduce another song that Carl brought. This one by Drake, oh, yeah. which I think the success of the song is very much in the fact that he uses Lauren Hill's vocals. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Anything else you'd like to say about the song? No, it's an anthem. I won't know who motherfucking representing it here tonight. Hold on, hold on. Louisiana shit. Murder on the beat. Something for y'all to cut up to, you know? Yeah. Everybody get your motherfucking roll on. I know Shorty and she doesn't want no slow song. Had a man last year, life goes on. Haven't let the thing lose, girl, in so long. You been inside, know you like to lay low. I've been people what you bring to the table. Working hard, girl, everything paid for. First, last phone, bill, car, no cable. With your phone out, gotta hit them angles. With your phone out, snapping like you fable. And you showing no, but it's alright. And you showing no, but it's alright. It's a short life. Without a follow, without a mention, you really piping up on these niggas. You gotta be nice for what to these niggas. I understand. You got a hundred bands, you got a baby bands, you got some bad friends. High school pics, you was even bad then. You ain't stressing off no lover in the past tense. You already had them. Work at 8 a.m., finish round five. Post talk down, you don't see them outside. Yeah, they don't really be the same offline. You know, dog days. So on to the difficulties now. I asked this just because from a kind of personal and maybe discipline point of view, I just think sometimes anthropologists like to have intellectual wanks, that's what I call them. And then that's how we then pretend that we can't talk to the broader public. I, I do find it difficult. I remember I once had to write a blog post and I wanted to go on this stuff about Foucault and the, the editors rightly got back to me and said, well, you know, that's interesting, but can we maybe not include it because, you know, people are not going to be interested in, in, in reading this. And mm. it was actually really difficult for me to talk about my work without relying on Foucault, which is Ridiculous, right? <laughs> mm. um, but I don't know if you've had similar experiences or if you found any other aspects of your work difficult to explain. I mean, one thing that I a lot from my in, from my informants, <laughs> there was this. Uh, I do get this question, sort of, what have you found? What is mm. the most profound thing you have found? And I don't actually know. I have no idea. There's not one thing that I haven't actually really had an aha moment even. And I think that maybe this is a good thing for, for your listeners that, I mean, I don't think that it, you necessarily have to. And But we're sort of fed this idea that there are aha moments mm. and everything clicks. And I haven't had that, if I'm honest. I'm, 
I, th- I think it took a few months for me to sort of just to gain some sort of access to my informants and for them to trust me on some level. And and then, I mean, I've had moments where things have sort of revealed themselves, but it hasn't been any sort of profound shifts in how I see things or everything hasn't become clear. And maybe that's different mm-hmm. for you, Alex, but I, I just haven't had that sort of moment. <laughs> um, I don't know if that's answering mm-hmm. your question. Yeah, no, all, that's actually really relevant mm. yes yeah i can relate to that yeah you often get the question so what's your key finding or yeah exactly yeah what's yeah. the most important thing you found and well i haven't done the data analysis yet so maybe i will find it <laughs> but to be fair yeah, yeah I have an idea. Uh, but That's at true. the moment i always say well i'm still doing field work um, i'm still reflecting on on my field work i'm not really sure what how to answer that question i mean yeah. i could say a lot of interesting things from my field work but i'm not really i can't really summarize in like three two bullet points yeah, yeah. so i think that's quite difficult and also the question that I think most qualitative researchers get is like, what does it tell about the bigger picture? So it's okay to do this study on two very specific local authority areas, yeah. well, chosen comparatively because of many reasons, but uh, at the same time, people can't, some people can't understand. So what does it tell about the UK, like the yeah. Brexit vote as a whole or the UK population as a whole? And it's quite difficult to explain, well, that's not the point. It's just, you know, comparing two areas to understand how some concepts work in practice or how some theories are true or not in practice, not necessarily to tell something about the Brexit vote. Or the, I think it's yeah. very arrogant to also assume that you can tell some sort of defining truth about the Brexit vote without having to pick apart and look at very specific localities. And I mean, maybe because I'm a geographer, I think that it's all about context and configurations. I choose one, I chose one city in Sweden. And I'm not saying that it's a microcosm of everything that's happening in Sweden. But I mean, it's an important example. And I don't, I don't see why I have to say that it's everywhere in Sweden is like that, because clearly it's not. And mm-hmm. I don't think you can capture that in statistics, though, either. Or, yeah. yeah, I agree. <laughs> Long way of saying that. And what kind of reaction has your public engagement work elicited, both from the public itself, but also from the world of academia? Because, again, in anthropology, sometimes it's kind of frowned upon to be like less less than Foucauldian. (laughs) (laughs) Did you read the express comments? I haven't. No, I haven't. I don't I don't know. I haven't read any of the comments about anything that I've have done. So I, I don't know. You should. I should. I haven't, though. But yeah, no, I should. It's, it's all sort of quite fresh, but I will. I mean, I don't think that they'll comment so much perhaps what I say, more just the thrust of the article. I mean, it was still, for example, the Express article was still that the nationalists gained heavily in Sweden, and that was the con- that was the framing of it. So I'm sure people will take that as, oh, Sweden was a lovely country once. <laughs> what's happened? Because that is very much the narrative that's still touted, even though I hopefully, as I said mm. earlier, nuanced it slightly. Yeah, I think there are mixed reactions, but it's to be expected if you have a controversial topic. So if you speak about migration, regardless of what political standpoint you mm. write from, or even if you try to write from an academic, more balanced perspective, yeah. you still get mixed reactions. So I, I don't know, for example, that LSE Brexit blog, because it was more about leave voters and about how it's kind of unfair to generalize about any group really be it migrants leave voters or remain voters it got quite positive reactions from leave voters Mm. uh, and actually telling like oh you're the first academic article that i read Mm. that actually doesn't demonize us you know which was interesting in itself to read the comments absolutely Uh, but some other things i write about uh, that are could be seen as more pro-migration in a way like if i challenge the 
low skill category and I say, look, it's not really like this in practice. People assume that, you know, I'm all for, let's say, open border, low skill migration, you know, in inverted Mm. commas. And then people say a lot of negative comments about we need to control the numbers. Like, you know, who is she speaking about this? Uh, She's not even British. (laughs) Why should should she have any influence on policy? And, you know, that comes up, the person comes up quite a lot as well when you talk about a controversial topic because people might Google your name, uh, you know, might see that you're from Romania. And then a lot of comments about, uh, yeah, questioning my own identity and, yeah, only... British people should be allowed to write about that. that especially and, with, yeah. Yeah. So sure. I think it's mixed. And uh, mm. yeah, but also negative comments from the opposite end of the spectrum as well. So people are thinking that I'm, you know, not pro-migration enough <laughs> in a way. Uh, or people questioning the use of migrant, which I know it's a very interesting discussion on whether you should even use the term migrant because, of course, it has some negative connotations mm. depending what you read and where. Uh, I always used migrant in a dictionary sense really person who moves to another country Mm. and immigrant for someone who moves permanently or whom you already know that they moved permanently but I think that's criticized quite a lot although I do try to explain that I just find this distinction helpful because I genuinely speak about people who stayed here for a long, very long time and people who are more like coming for a few months to work than Mm. back or live transnationally between different countries so if you call everyone only one word you can't really make those nuances in your writing so I find it quite difficult to engage with that argument although I can see the arguments for calling you know EU people in the UK like EU citizens and not EU migrants sometimes it's useful to make the distinction especially if you're speaking about EU people already here and EU people across the EU Mm, yeah so yeah Mm, I mean that's it's an interesting sort of parallel to that but in Sweden as I was saying earlier, the kind of the context of the rise of the Sweden Democrats and this sort of anti-immigrant, I mean, there have been anti-immigrant sentiments for a long time in Sweden and before they were sort of contained even within the, the mainstream traditional parties. But just the idea of speaking about immigration is very new in Sweden. It's been very, and just w- witnessing that process just this past year um, leading up to the campaign, like how, for example, the Social Democrats were going to talk about migration and we're going to so it's not much it's not so much european immigration that has been the the topic of debate in sweden it's the after the syrian refugee crisis so it's non-european immigration and how that has increased markedly not net migration to sweden has increased in the last 10 years um but it's just like how just talking about it like on an everyday level with party activists and how some most are quite uncomfortable with it still mm. and you can tell even within the debates the national televised debates as well that it's because this idea has been the critique of it has been hijacked by the Sweden Democrats for so long or at least they've held the sort of mandate of speaking about it in a forthright manner or using a very specific sort of vocabulary that then all the other parties have or the two main traditional large conservatives and the social democrats they've more or less the sweden democrats have forced them to to adopt some of the same language which Mm. has been Mm. interesting yeah perhaps worrying and what about from an academic perspective i assume possibly your research center at ucl is quite happy that you're promoting your research as widely as you are yeah, I had uh, positive comments from yeah from UCL and other fellow academics, PhD students as well. So of course you can have more personal conversations where people critique 
your work in more detail, but overall, yeah. from an institutional perspective, I think my department encourages public engagement. And, you know, they even publish newsletters with, uh, they have a, se- a special section for uh, student contributions, like how PhD students and even masters sometimes engage with the public. So, oh, that's good. yeah. Is that the same at LSE? No, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I think LSE encourages public engagement. And I mean, I was con- contacted when I was still in Sweden by the sort of media relations uh. team saying that, you know, the Swedish election is coming up. And mm. I don't know, I got the feeling that maybe I was the only person in Sweden from LSE or something at the moment. So they forwarded everything to me. Um, but within my department, I don't know, as it, it's very fresh and I just got back from field work three days ago I haven't really I mean I don't know my supervisors think it's think it's good but I don't know what yeah I mean I'm sure that my department thinks it's also a, a good idea yeah. and maybe they'll publish it in our newsletter but yeah good that's always good to get that institutional endorsement since we were also doing it for them sure, sure yeah yeah all about this impact <laughs> it's exactly. all about that impact exactly well, before we move on to the final remarks, I will play a song from a list of, of music that Alex sent me, a bunch of like top-rated songs about migration. And oh, I was wow. very excited to find a song on there by a Mexican band called Molotov. And I hadn't heard the song in years. It took me right back to my high school years when I thought I was really badass for listening to a song that is full of swear words. Um, (laughs) So I'm going to play Frijolero and then we'll be right back with some final remarks. Great. So we are at the almost end of today's show. It's flown by and it's been so interesting. Uh, we were just saying in that mu- musical interlude that Alex should have brought some of her comments <laughs> that she's received. It would have been an interesting yeah, next time I'll read them out, different comments from both Remain voters and Leave voters to be interesting to compare. Oh, I bet. That'd be awesome. <laughs> Slam poetry. <laughs> yeah. So in this uh, final bit, I wanted to ask you both um, if you have any advice for listeners uh, about how to disseminate research. Uh, Carl, you you had a moment of... Enlight- had, yes, finally, a light bulb. Um, no, well, I, I think that 
it was just in the when I had that first initial media request, and it was this Australian journalist, and he wanted to know about the context of the Swedish election, and I was in the lead up to it a few days before, and it was about how I how I plugged my own research into it because I could have easily just given the interview and answered very broad, diffused questions about the context and whatnot. But then I was like, oh, well, where I'm doing my research. And then I just sort of pushed that and that got included into the article where he said, you know, where I'm, where I've set up my research in Norrköping and that, that was included in the article. So I think it's just, I don't know, a word of advice is if you do get media appearances and Alex was saying this and that's what triggered me to think about it was that if you can get your own shoehorn your your own research into a, a media comment that's always good and then journalists do usually i think tend to want that because i guess it adds more it mm. thickens the context mm. but something to have in mind if mm. you're speaking to a journalist that thank you I would say, first of all, check with your university if you have media training, because some of the research councils do media training Mm. days, some of the universities do sessions, and they usually have different workshops how to deal with the press. It's quite different than dealing with live TV, for example. So it's just to make sure you're prepared and have a bit more confidence as well, because especially the first time if you're on TV or speaking to a journalist, you might feel a bit nervous or Mm. not secure about what you're saying. Um, And also... When if you get a call from a journalist out of nowhere because they found your number somewhere on the university website or through Twitter, don't give the interview straight away. You can always say, because a lot of people are tempted to say, oh, you know, finally, journalists call me. I'll just yeah. answer now. And because you don't have to think through your that time to think through your answers. So just say, sorry, I'm busy now. Could you call, even if they want something urgent, could you call in half an hour? Yeah. Even half an hour can make a big, very big difference. And always ask them, you know, do you have some questions? that I could consider I can't do now the interview, but please call me back in an hour or later this evening. And if you ever appear on a panel, (laughs) uh, ask who else are you appearing with? Because if, for example, your university wouldn't be happy for you to be on a panel with Nigel Farage, I'm not saying that's the case for every institution, but, you know, you have to to check before if that's okay about, you know, different issues with platform sharing. You never know who might end up on the same panel with you. Yeah, yeah, I have two Two thoughts that mm. Alex again has triggered. Um, but so the first is, yeah, especially yeah, if you can ask, if you can ask the journalist to send, if it was, uh, yeah, I did two live um, radio interviews and I was like, can you send the questions beforehand or what we're going to talk about? So, and I mean, maybe they would have done that anyways, but they're like, oh yeah, that's a good idea. And then they did. And then they sent them. So I had a bit of time to prepare. So I knew, you know, I just didn't shoot from the hip completely. But then also I had, two requests from Russia to do interviews. Mm. Um, One was from Sputnik, um, and then the other one was from Russia Today. So one was for TV and one was for radio. Can I interrupt you briefly to shout out to your wonderful girlfriend, Stina, who prevented you from giving that interview? Yes, yes. (laughs) Well, um, that is true. But the the first one, Sputnik, I thought was, that was, I mean, I just looked it up a bit, and it's been accused of being a sort of propaganda outlet for the Kremlin. And there's, I think that there's, you, obviously, I could have done that, and that would have been fine. But I think it's you. You should do only what you feel comfortable doing. Um, I think the Russia Today also probably would have been okay as well. But there have been accused of being propaganda outlets, and I didn't, uh, you know, 
So I think it's 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 always important to only do what you feel comfortable mm. with and not just be sort of overwhelmed by oh wow and I get to talk to a journalist and think think through that maybe just one step further and I contacted an old professor of mine um, from my undergrad who, who focuses on Russia and he was he also said you know I've I've always ignored Sputnik when they've tried to reach out to me just because you don't know what context your comments are put into but I'm not I'm not saying you shouldn't necessarily do it if you feel comfortable and. Mm. All the rest of it, but I, I personally wasn't, so I didn't. And then also, yes, my wonderful girlfriend Stina prevented <laughs> me from doing the, the Russia Today one. Which is, yes, in a moment of weakness, I did think about it. Maybe. Also, yes. I would add, there's you know just some people are not necessarily comfortable to speak with the press or TV, and that's fine. And I just mm. want to say there's more to public engagement than yeah. the mainstream media. Uh, so I definitely recommend blogs, but I also recommend festivals. I went to Bloomsbury Festival, especially if you have something visual in your research. So I had this small stall with e-referendum leaflets. I had a flip chart where people could speak to me, write their thoughts. So it could actually even be data collection or at least some brainstorming for your research, and it could be quite creative as well. Yeah, I had great. a map where people put where they come from with like different small stickers, so it was quite interactive. It's not necessarily a very academic activity, but at the same time, it can make you reflect about your own research and some of the topics. Uh, so um, And also exhibitions, so there's the LSC Brexit Library going on at the moment, so I cu- guess curated a small section for them as well. So that could be a way that you're not necessarily present there, so you don't have to deal with the stress of being interviewed or appearing on television, but your name is there and a lot of people will see it, if it's especially yeah. if it's in central London or any yeah. major town. You took the words out of my mouth because that's the other question I wanted to ask you, like alternatives other than mainstream media. But another question that I wanted to ask is, how do you start if somebody doesn't pick you out of the crowd and you do want to get your word out there? Would you? I mean, my in my experience, it's just been blogs, but I don't know if mm. you if you guys have other suggestions on how you can start engaging with the wider public. I started with blogs as well. During my MPhil, I actually did some blogs on Romanian migration. Uh, But then I opened my Twitter account last year. And since then, you know, from one contact to another, I just got more and more media appearances and Mm. more and more engagement. So I think that made a big difference for me was made by Twitter and the fact that I wrote quite long threads, threads on migration Uh, asking a lot of difficult questions that perhaps other politicians or commentators don't necessarily engage with. Mm. But I think it's different depending on your on your topic. Yeah, yeah I was going to say that I think mm. it's, I think that you, I mean, especially what your research is, is, it is very topical and it's here in the UK and it's very sort of salient for everyone. And I, I mean, mine was in a way just for that specific moment, there was a Swedish election. I think that's why I got, I got called on. Um, mm. But otherwise, I'm, I don't know, I'm at a loss for any suggestions because <laughs> I haven't been very good at it <laughs> if I'm if I'm honest if you're doing field work especially qualitative field work sometimes it's a good idea to organize something in the area that you studied mm. so let's say I do some research on I don't know Romanian migrants in East London so especially if you have your findings you could do a form of public engagement where you invite your participants and other local residents and you can present uh, your research findings in a nice environment with your participants and Uh, in a non-academic language yeah, and yeah. it counts as community engagement as well and it's quite nice that all the people who helped you uh, often uh, with their in, in their own free time 
uh, actually see the results and get to have a say. And sometimes you can even incorporate feedback from them. It depends if your PhD includes a lot of reflection or methodology. Sometimes it's useful to bring it back to your participants and see see what they say about it. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I think uh, all that I have left to do now is say a really big thank you both for taking time out of your busy schedules. And Alex, I know you're about to rush off to do a TV appearance. Yes, indeed. The theme continues. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and Brexit uh, yeah. negotiations continue. <laughs> yes. Oh, and they will. Yeah. So thank you very, very much for contributing your time um, and for such a really interesting discussion. And I really hope that listeners can take something away from it. I'm sure they will. We're going to be hearing one last song uh, that Carl brought uh, places. Oh, yeah. Anything you want to say about that? No, I, I heard it on Swedish public radio ah. when I was driving somewhere recently. And it's just, I think it's a French electronic duo called The Blaze. And yeah, it was really catchy, I thought. Wonderful. So. Well, thank you both. And thank you, listeners. You've been listening to The Imposters and So Us Radio. And I'll catch you again in about a month's time. <laughs>